Today we've got a very special guest and we're going to run this as a conversation. We've both decided that just now and we're going to involve you in the conversation at some point. But let's start at the beginning. Once there was a little girl called Esther. She had a sister, Bella, a mother, Bernadine. They went on wild, possibly crazy adventures together uh, when Esther was just a very wee thing, most famously to Morocco. And that became the story that you might know as Hideous Kinky, a novel and then a, a, a film. She had a father, a very, very famous father. She had a very, very, very famous grandfather, great-grandfather. But as we'll hear, she didn't start out in life knowing much about either of those. Her, her great-grandfather had died many years before, the Dr. Dr. Sigmund Freud. Um, the other, her father, was living an unscripted, enigmatic life as an artist, Lucien Freud. It seems strange to introduce this guest on International Women's Day through the lens of her father and her great-grandfather. But that's partly what we want to talk about today, those sorts of relationships that define us. Because our, our childhoods, our family histories is, uh, uh, shape us as women um, in many and varied ways. They bolster us, they brand us, they help us grow, um, they give us things to embrace, they give us things to rebel against, they scar us, they delight us. Our family stories are a big part of who we are. And many of us in this room, I guess, feel very self-directed and accomplished and, and self-defined independent spirits. But um, our lives and as we live them are, are shaped by invisible forces, not of the ghostly variety. And there is a, a ghostly narrator in Esther Freud's latest book, Mr Mac and Me, he's a little boy. But those ghostly forces that come through us uh, via our family. So this little girl, Esther, grew up. Uh, she's been finding a way, though, beautifully, to write novels that intersect with this family story of hers. Um, she studied to be an actor. She has had three children. Her eight books include, and many of you have probably enjoyed them, Peerless Fort Flats, uh, Summer at Gaglo, The Wild, the Sea House, Love Falls, Lucky Break, and now, of course, Mr Mac and Me. And Esther Freud joins us as our special guest today at All About Women. Please give her a warm welcome. Thank you. Welcome Thank to Sydney. Thank you so much. A first time? Uh, yes. Very happy to be here. We're here to talk about stories of childhood because you've been telling stories of childhood in almost all of your novels. What, what is that about? I never really think that... I mean, someone once said to me that you discover what you're interested in by writing novels. I think I might have read it in a review um, saying, this is actually, you know, Esther's, these are Esther's preoccupations, belonging, childhood, where houses, and I thought, so they are, but I, I came at it in a kind of organic way that I just needed to tell these stories. Mm. And when I write my novels, I very rarely think that I'm telling it from the point of view of a child. I'm just finding somebody who can tell the story. And I, I very rarely differentiate between the child. The, the, I just, this is my narrator. I don't think of them as a child. They are a fully formed human being in that moment. 
Why belonging? I think belonging because I had such a peripatetic childhood that, and also, I mean, <clears throat> I know creative people often feel this, of being an outsider. And so when I was very young, I was four and a half, we went off to Morocco and we lived there for a year and a half traveling around and I was an outsider. And I was, it made me very bonded with my the little triangle of my family, my mother and my sister and myself. We were, we were there kind of against the world and sometimes included in the world, but always different. And then when we came back to England, we were also different because we'd had this adventure. And when I arrived back, my hair was bright red with henna and I had patterns up my arms. And I was the one kid in the class who didn't have a school uniform. And, and we were different and we lived in the country in Sussex, which is quite a conservative part of Britain. And for 10 years, we were still the outsiders. And, and there's just something that sticks. Even though you went to a Steiner school, so yeah. the, the kind of bohemian it's impulse was still there, clearly. The layers of outsiderness are yeah. just so many and deep. <laughs> My Lord. So we were kind of... The Steiner people were always outsiders within the community. When, when the Steiner kids got on the bus, the other kids did not speak to us. <laughs> You know, there was all of that. And then within the school, we weren't Steinerish enough. You know, there's just, there's so many once you get into it. And then, of course, you know, then suddenly my dad would appear in a kind of dark blue Rolls Royce and take us off for the somewhere, for, you know, on a journey. And um, then we really felt like outsiders, but in a really exciting way. So, you know, was, I'm, not, I'm not protesting against this. It was great fun, but it kind of gave me a way of looking at the world, that I was a watchful child. A watchful child. Mm. There was a lot of movement, a lot of moving. Um, <clears throat> it was a peripatetic childhood. Um, so let's start with your mother taking the two of you to Morocco, which of course became the novel and, and your first novel, Hideous Kinky, and the film with um, Kate Winslet. Um, I was interested to read reviews of that book that, that some embraced it as a, a kind of adventure into the exotic. Others felt it was about a story of child neglect. And I, how, how do you feel about that, reading you know, of it? It was, it was really hard. I mean, writing a novel set in your own life um, is, is always hazardous. Because you have, <clears throat> I mean, I teach creative writing sometimes and there are two things that really stop people writing. One is just discipline and the other is, what will my mother say? <laughs> and now I was just, I, I really believe naivety and ignorance are a fabulous asset in life. The more you have of it, the more you'll get done. And I sat down with both of those in spades. I just never imagined anyone was going to read this book. I just, I was just needing desperately to tell this story. So when it was finished, um, with some trepidation, I did give it to my mother. And she was, well, I would say, being a mother myself, it's your least favorite idea that your tiny child will grow up and remember everything that happened. <laughs> so I really felt for her, and I've always been incredibly close to my mother, very attached to her. So she was... Um, I could see she was wanting, I mean, wanting to be supportive, but she, struck, she struggled with some of the things in it, but she was basically fine until the book came out and the reviews hurt her so deeply that the, the, when it was published in 1992, so much 
often the male reviewer's attitude was, oh, this feckless, um, irresponsible woman dragging, dragging. They always said dragging. I was never dragged anywhere. I was like caught up in my mother's arms and taken around the world. How fantastic was that compared to my mother who was sent off to boarding school to a Catholic nunnery where she felt utterly neglected and abused. So she felt she was giving her children the, the most world. wonderful childhood, always mm. close, never left us. Um, but she, so she felt so hurt, so deeply hurt, and that hurt me. So that was a really traumatic time when that book came out. Did it affect your relationship, that, that very public accusation from it reviewers? It did, it really did. Um, I'm so, I was listening to, to Rhea and, and Liz Gilbert talking earlier and I was just like thinking about so many of the things they said and one of the things that um, I think Elizabeth said was, uh, you know, what, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger and how untrue that really is. But in this case, it really did make our relationship stronger. We went through a very difficult time and we came out like having faced some truths that had never been said and that was what made us stronger. What did a childhood on the move do for you? I, I, I'm interested in this because I went to 13 schools and it just, it was constantly on the move. And mm. I, I, I reflect often on the resilience that, that that brings, but also the vulnerabilities as well. What, what did it do for you? It's interesting. It's interesting to have a, a very close sister who was two years older. So I was kind of aware my reactions were not always hers. And, so, and also you take a role in a family. So when we came back to Sussex, age six and a half, I went to school for the first time, and we then moved continuously because we didn't have a home and my mother had almost no money. She sort of basically survived on kind of child benefit and little, you know, menial jobs. And um, um, so, so we moved and moved and moved. I think we moved 16 times in two years at one point in these early days. And it kind of still hurts when I say that because I always went, hooray, this is fun. Oh, this place has um, a garden. You know, it was like I was so positive because my sister was kind of not so positive. My sister was quite kind of ferocious and angry and my mother was coping. So I felt like it was my job to go, everything's fine. It's all fine and hooray, we're moving again. Because the one thing about moving so much is it's always a bit nicer than where you left or you wouldn't really have left. So mm. there was some positivity. Mm. I was a kind of positivity fiend as a kid. <laughs> it's like, I really, I heard my daughter saying to someone in a really irritable voice, oh, my mum's always in a good mood. I was like, uh, she didn't see me crying in the bathroom, you know. But it's like, it's, it's not always useful. Yes, you've I, been thinking about that, haven't you, of late, I think? Yeah. This, the, the sort of, uh, the Pollyanna self. Yeah, I guess it's just not always honest. But it's a habit that, that served me well. But I don't have to do it for the whole of my life. That's what I realised recently. Why did and you realise that? Why did I realise it? I think it's just because um, sometimes it's okay to say, I don't know how I feel. I'm not sure. Is this okay? instead of always going, I'm sure this is okay, I'll make it okay. It's just not honest, and I noticed I was, I was feeling distressed. Yeah. It was just an honesty blockade. So, mm. yeah, it's interesting. It's an ongoing journey, it just never ends, you know. <laughs> sure is. Mm. Your father, you didn't really know in your first lives, first years of your life. Mm. You, you got to know him, I think, as kind of more in your late childhood and certainly in your teens, that connection became extremely robust, despite his absence. So what, 
What brought you and your father, Lucien Freud, together eventually? Well, from age about eight, I don't actually have any memory of him before eight. I, he started to visit us in the country, and I remember his visits because it was so dramatic when he was so different from everybody else. Um, and so I was... I had a, a, a sort of slow getting to know him through, through that part of my childhood. Um, he, he said to me once, he was a bit scared of children, especially the, the younger they were, he just didn't really know how to be with them. And um, I could see that. Um, but when I moved to London when I was 16, and I was the young... Well, my sister had already moved, and I, I had discovered at 13 that I had a lot of half-brothers and sisters, all of whom lived in London. So I was desperate to get to London and be a lot. part. At least well, 14. I didn't know there were that many at that point. <laughs> I, I kind of met... I met two or three, and then there were a few more, and then someone said, oh, you know. L but, Lucian may not have liked small children, but he certainly liked contributing to their creation. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the connection... There was some, something where he didn't make that connection. I can only assume, or who knows? He I don't know what he was thinking. <laughs> I think I said this to you in the, in the green room. He didn't like a direct question. <laughs> but I, I was quite good. Um, I, I, I used my time modelling for him, which is how I really got to know him, to kind of tease out information. So he really didn't like a direct question. And I've always been quite... I think the watchful child helped me to find a way of trying to get indirect information. And he, he, so he, I mean, this happens to quite a lot of Jewish emigres, refugees, I'm sure from all cultures, but I noticed this with my father and I since learned so much about it. You know, they, they go two ways. Either they become very family focused with their own family mm -hmm. and everything is about the safety of, you know, keeping close with that family who kind of came from the trauma of what they came for. Or, as my father chose to do, starting again afresh with total liberation. And my, so my father never mentioned his family. He never mentioned that we were Jewish. He never mentioned the war. He never mentioned anything. He didn't introduce you to his, your grandparents? No. He did he, introduce he me separate? to his mother. Quite, she was quite near the end of her life. But I think I was maybe one of the only children he did introduce because I looked very uncannily like her. And one day he said, this is too strange, I'm going to introduce you. But she, and I got some insight into my father, um, I took a friend because I was nervous, and she fixed on my friend as her granddaughter. Mm. How bizarre was that? And kind of ignored me. But she was also, she wasn't in her, you know, she was elderly and not in her right mind. So it was, it was interesting mm. and strange, but I didn't. Well, I didn't know what to make of it. So there you are, a 16-year-old girl modelling naked for your dad. Yeah. Well, yeah. Interesting sort of dynamic. How do you reflect on that oh. now? Hmm. How do I reflect on it? I don't reflect on it much. I guess you reflect on things that make you uneasy and it really was the most natural thing for me to do. And I know that probably sounds really strange to most people in this room. But my father, from age eight, when I saw him, almost always was in his studio where he lived. So I grew up, he and his painting were kind of, there was nothing between them. Mm -hmm. And there was nothing really else he did apart from be in his studio that I knew of. So um, he went through various phases of his painting, his studio being full of, say, la um, 
still lives or you know, portraits. Um, for, for several years, he painted um, the view from his window, and I used to go every few months and be like, God, he's still on that painting. So I feel so sorry for him, like, now the painting's less than last time. <laughs> he took so much out, you know, I couldn't even understand that he would be, I think it was fine. I mean, I learned a lot about discipline from that. Mm. Anyway, so around the time when I was 16 and finally in London, and he'd said to me, when you come to London, will you model for me? And he would pay me. So I was like, yes, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this thing my, my siblings had done, sat for him, and I'm going to have a job. I couldn't believe the luck of that. Um, and his, his, his studio was full of nudes. And so I took my clothes off, and lay it on the sofa in the most uncomfortable position I could find because I wanted to be a good... I'd heard him say, so-and-so sits very well. I thought, I want that to be me. And so I thought, if I'm really uncomfortable, then he'll be like, gosh, she sits so well. Anyway, after about half an hour, I went, can I change my position? <laughs> and so I just kind of lay in the most comfortable position I could find. And he worked very, very slowly, as I've said. So twice a week, from like 7 p.m. till midnight, I sat for him for nine months, nearly a year, and that's when I got to know him. Mm -hmm. And it was actually the most healing, wonderful thing I, that could have happened to me, because to be noticed is to be loved in many ways. And to have the gaze of someone who you love on you and to see that they're creating something incredible because of you and in all the bre breaks and gaps between sitting... We would eat and chat and laugh, and he was an incredible entertainer. He would sing songs and recite poems and be funny. It was just, he was an incredibly wonderful man to spend time with, very charismatic. And I then sat for him never naked again, interestingly enough. He never, he never asked me the first time, but he never, mm. it was always kind of up to me what I did, pretty much continuously until I was about, yeah, in my 30s, when I had... He, the last time he painted me, I was breastfeeding my youngest, my oldest child. But, you know, after that, I just didn't have time. And I, mm -hmm. I regret that, that I didn't continue. But I was like, I just couldn't find a way of um, sitting for him anymore. It's a lovely story. It's a, it's a complicated story through the lens of today, isn't it? Um, we've, I was explaining to Esther before the Bill Henson um, debate in Australia, photographer young children posing naked and the sort of heat that that generated after he'd been doing it for decades. Um, interesting. I mean, it was interesting to think back because this was 80... I don't know when did I say it? Late 70s, I guess. And um, there wasn't a controversy at all, although there was one time when he had an exhibition and there were several paintings of his daughters naked within this exhibition. And he never gave interviews, but he did say, my naked daughters have nothing to be ashamed of. <laughs> Which always made me laugh. And we didn't. Yeah. You, you have thought about what you've drawn from your mother and your father differently as you developed your own creative self. Yeah. Uh, I guess both as a performer when you trained to be an actor and then as a novelist now. What, 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 did, what have they each given you? Well, my mother was an innately creative person and she lived a life very clearly the way she wanted to live. She rebelled. In fact, both my parents were incredibly rebellious. They both 
had almost nothing to do with their families from a pretty early age and um, just broke away and decided to live how they wanted to live. And so my mother, you know, she was always sewing and incredibly talented gardener and, 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 and she, she also wrote uh, later in her life. So, but she, in, in, a, in a smaller, less, obs- less obsessive way, she was very creative and we lived, you know, we, we never had a television and we always sort of made and did everything ourselves. And that's, she was very sort of whole, whole food way before it was fashionable. Um, so that sort of inspired me because I, I, I mean, the whole Steiner ethic too is the hand and the heart. Uh, the sort of head, the heart and the hand. That You know, in a way, it's a very healing and creative thing to be making things. Mm. So we were always, you know, carving things out of wood or sewing or doing things. I loved that. But when I, when I started, when I decided that I was going to do this thing of sitting down, it terrified me. And actually writing, trying to write out the story of Hideous Kinky, discipline, I realised that is what I got from my father. Because it's, you can be creative in many areas of your life. And actually, I notice when I write a lot, I stop being creative in many areas of my life. And it really saddens me because I've used up everything and I'm just exhausted. Um, but in order to do something big, like write a book or paint a picture, you have to have discipline. And so I've seen my father working, working, working so patiently. Mm. And often... Hours went, a day. Hours. And often it would go wrong. And yeah, he would kind of curse and stamp and sometimes he'd stab himself with his paintbrush, which always terrified me. But he didn't ever go, I give up. Or this just isn't... He would just continue. He would just have a kind of frustrated moment and then he would rub it out or whiten it out and then he would continue. And he always got there in the end. And actually, that was the most... God, I'm so grateful for that lesson mm. that I began. And often it's just terrible. And sometimes you have to just give up on a whole hundred pages. But you just carry on. And you, if you carry on and carry on, you will get somewhere eventually. Which is what you did for this book, actually. Yeah, um, I did. And, and we, we might get to some of the other books because you've been making sense of a chaotic childhood in all your books in various ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you started out, Mr. Mac and me, you, you started out narrating quite differently, didn't you? Tell us about that process and, and what it became. Yeah. Well, um, it's really nice when you're writing a book to have an idea for another book. For me, I'm like panicking if I don't have an idea banked up. And so for quite a while, I'd had an idea to write a book set in a house that I own in a little village in the country on the Suffolk coast. And... Uh, it had lots and lots of interesting things in it um, about it, this house. Um, when I'd bought it, um, the man who owned it, who was, um, um, he was actually an elderly man who um, was friends with um, a cousin of my father's, obviously, who had ne- never been mentioned, but um, a kind of, as we call them, a sort of Freudy person. That's the best way to describe it. So he was a kind of... Uh, um, this cousin, and then the cousin had um, inherited the house from a Viennese psychiatrist who'd come over who was a friend of my grandpa's. That was the sort of background of this house for, from the 40s till, till, you know, 10 years ago or so. And he had wanted to sell the house back into the Freud family because he wanted to leave everything in it as he had bought it with everything in it himself. 
And so I remember thinking, oh, I just, I can hardly believe this, this lucky thing is happening to me. Um, it was very hard to find anywhere for sale in this village. So me and my husband bought this house. And um, he also had written a history of the house mm. because before it was a private dwelling, it had been the village pub. And one of the things I noticed, apart from all the sad and impoverished stories of the landlords going back to 1700, you know, eight children, one surviving, ended up in the poorhouse, all these kind of little stories, um, uh, child, the architect, Charles Rennie Mackintosh, had stayed in the pub at some point after the First World War. And I was kind of like, wow, that's so interesting. So... But then I became totally sidetracked by living in a house that was completely full of someone else's possessions. What sort of things? Well, I mean, literally everything you can imagine. Sort of more... <laughs> it was like it was a time warp of the 1950s, really. So there was a teapot with a tea cosy on beside the sink, a dishcloth over the rail, some plates stacked up, a bath mat, the sheets, the bed made up, and every single thing in the house was labelled. Labelled with people's names from the, the, the different German-Jewish names of people who'd lived there. Um, what little um, labels of wine bottles uh, with the date, what they'd eaten, always in German, and who had been there for dinner, which was often my grandparents, who I didn't know. And so that was just so interesting. You know, Gemüse Suppe, do-do-do, and then, you know, these names. And then, but crazy things were labelled. They'd got totally out of hand. Amethyst, it said amethyst on it. It was like... <laughs> A little, a little white jug with a curled-up label inside that said, does not pour very well. Oh. <laughs> and then as you went up the stairs, just as you hit your head on the beam, it said, low beam. <laughs> it was fantastic. I thought, surely I can write a book you set in this house with all of this stuff. And there was also something that I never mentioned or even really put into words, but there was a ghost, a little a young boy who just hovered in the back hall. I never even, I never, I don't know, it was so strange. I just accepted it like the tea cosy. Just kind of, I used to go, in England we have a kind of tradition, if you see one magpie, one for sorrow, two for joy, you go, salute my lord. And um, I would do that to this boy, I'd just go, I know you're there. So. Are you prone to ghosts? Hmm, I've, I've felt a few. And I don't think unusually so. But maybe, I don't know. It just seemed totally normal to me. But I never mentioned it to anybody else. And it continued on. So I started writing this book and I thought a young woman, well, a woman in her 30s, moves into this house. She's being haunted and various things happen and the labels and... Anyway, I thought, honestly, I think I've cracked this one. Always a disaster to have so much confidence or any at all, really, at the beginning of a project. <laughs> anyway, I kind of trundled on. The ghost wasn't scary. I couldn't really work out why they'd labelled everything. Uh, nothing was taking energy. You 18 know. months of hard oh, slog. I continued on, you know. So I, I, heard, um, I heard Thomas Keneally once saying on the radio, writing is an appointment with doubt. And I was like, here I am again, <laughs> me and Mr. Doubt. And so... One day, I was just, I was actually in this village and I was writing and I thought, what if the ghost has a voice? And so instead of my narrator kind of moaning on, it felt, the ghost said, I just gave him, and he said, my name is Thomas Max. I was born upstairs in this small room, not in the smallest room with the outshot window where I sleep now. I was like, oh, I got him. And that was it. And I thought, okay. I don't need to do this whole complicated thing where the narrator's researching Charles Manny, Mackintosh, and blah, blah, blah. 
Thomas is the landlord's son. It's 1914, Charles Rennie Mackintosh comes to the village. Forget the labeling, forget the fact that the house was knocked down and moved to the, forget everything. This is the story. Mm. And I began, oh God, it was painful. I had to get rid of those pages, those pages. Mm. So I had at one point 150 pages and then I had seven pages the next day. So I went away on my own for about four days and I just wrote day and night until I had about 30 pages. Then I felt, okay, I have I mean, something. Mm. And then I just worked. And actually a year or so later, it was done. I really... And Thomas... Got it. Thomas, uh, it's the story of a relationship between a boy and a man, really, isn't it? Yeah. And, and wartime. And in fact, wartime enters a number of your novels... Um, hmm, it does, yeah. I, I'm thinking. Yeah. Um, I guess in, in Britain... And wartime... Well, everywhere. It just divides up history in such a powerful way. And families. Way. And I mean, families. I'm, and I'm interested yeah. in that too, yeah. because, of course, your great-grandfather famously fled to London under the, yeah. under the Nazis, um, Sigmund Freud, and, yeah. and so your, that's where your family story connected with London. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So I feel, you know, with this story, I, I kind of... In, 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 the, in the sort of previous incarnation, I had been researching Charles Rennie Mackintosh and finding out that he wasn't just um, this incredibly successful, revered architect who'd designed the Glasgow School of Art, Britain's, you know, one of Britain's favourite buildings. I discovered that he was a really overlooked and unemployed person at this point in his life and that the reason he'd come to this little village in Suffolk wasn't just for a holiday, it was because he was desperate and in a kind of state of nervous collapse, and that he'd come to this village for sanctuary. And in fact, what had happened there was the war had broken out, and it was considered to be the most dangerous place in Britain, because it's right on this easterly coast, if you think of Britain, where it sticks out to the east. It was right opposite the kind of, you know, mm. Belgium and Holland and, and France, and um, they felt there was an imminent invasion, and people would land right there, and um, everybody who could possibly afford to leave left that coast. And um, Charles Rennie Mackintosh and his artist wife, Margaret MacDonald, couldn't afford to leave. They'd only just left Glasgow uh, in, in a, in, under such difficult circumstances. And so they stayed, and they stayed, and they stayed. And the village, in times of trouble, people always turn to somebody different. And they were different. And they, he spoke in this strong Scottish accent, and people started to be suspicious of him. And so I used my narrator, Thomas, as his ally and a way of telling Mackintosh's story. And I tried ultimately in this novel to write a novel, but to also include a sort of small biography of this extraordinary man and his wife, actually, who's just the most incredible, talented woman. In fact, Charles Rennie Mackintosh said such beautiful things. He was really devoted to her. And he said, um, she has genius where I have only talent. And she is half, if not three quarters, in all my designs because they worked so closely together. And in a way, it was one of the tragedies is that as his career faltered, so did hers because she um, had dedicated her life too, once she married him, um, to designing uh, with him, so designing the interiors of his buildings. And um, it was just so hard for them both to carry on and also just economically, mm. just suffered and struggled so much. And I found these wonderful letters between, well, not between them, but from him to her. And um, he was writing on the thinnest possible paper um, with the finest pen so that he could afford a stamp to send the letter. That's how poor they were. 
And now, oh my God, both their work sells for millions of pounds. Let's hear a little bit, shall sure. we? I'll read you a little bit. Um, I tell the whole story from the point of view of um, Thomas. And um, as I've said, he's the publican's son. As I discovered from reading the history of the Blue Anchor, which is what the pub was called then, um, a lot of the landlords um, were obviously you know, completely overwhelmed by having such access to alcohol, and they would sort of fall into the water butt and drown, or, or run off, one of them ran off to Australia with the barmaid. This was in 1800. Um, many stories, and um, Thomas's father is an alcoholic and a difficult and violent man. He's very close to his mother, and I'm just thinking of things that might come up in this passage. Um, the, uh, Macintosh also really struggled with, with alcohol, as, as do a lot of Scottish men. And um, he famously designed for Miss Cranston's tea shop. And Miss Cranston was design, creating tea shops, trying to get people out of pubs. But she didn't manage to get Macintosh out of the pub, but he did design the most beautiful interiors for her. Um, he, so he's come into, this, um, into the pub, and Thomas has set eyes on him, but now um, he sees him again. It is only a day or two before I see the Scotsman again, walking along beside the river. Mac, he is called. At least that's what they call him when they whisper his business in the bar. And now I see why he is making so much talk. He looks for all the world like a detective. He's wearing a great black cape and a hat of felted wool, and he is puffing on his pipe as if he's Sherlock Holmes. He has a bad foot. I hadn't noticed that before. His shoe is all stacked up, although it doesn't stop him walking fast with his stick hitting the ground so that I have to hurry after with my own twisted foot to keep him in my sights. He crosses the bridge and I keep down behind the dunes as he heads for the beach. Every few minutes he halts and looks back as if he suspects he might be being followed. But it can't be me he sees. I know the land too well. It's getting dark. There is a big moon, pale as cloud, hanging over the sea, and for a long time he walks along the tide line. I keep to the highland, dipping down into the marum grass whenever he looks round. But then it seems that he accepts he is alone, because he stops and stares out at the waves. He must be searching for clues of some kind, just like Mr. Holmes. And he's looking so hard he doesn't seem to notice how the water is washing in around his boots. I leave him to it and go back to the harbour to see if any of the night fishermen have come to untie their boats. But all is quiet. So I sit on the wall, wondering what Mother will say now that I've missed my chores, and wishing I hadn't seen that look on Father's face, which means it is a drinking day, and there's nothing I can do. I'll wait, I think, until he's too unsteady to lash out. And then there he is, Mac, standing right in front of me, the pipe puffing white into the night. Enjoy your walk, he asks. And without even the flicker of a smile, he limps away up the street and over the green, so that for a long while, even though I'm half-starved for having missed my supper, too frightened to follow. The strange thing about Mac is that you don't see him all day. And then just as it starts getting dark, there he is, in that great cape, striding out on his walk. But he isn't a detective. I soon discover that. He's an artist, and he has a wife who is an artist too, with thick red hair piled on top of her head and fastened with a pin. They've taken a studio, a hut it is, although you'd never know it, now they've made it their own. They've cleared it out and painted the wood white, and they have tea parties in there, sometimes just the two of them. 
that's when I first saw her, Mrs. Mack, sitting outside on a crate, painting a row of poppies and below it a row of babies, fat and laughing on a scroll. I stopped to have a look, and through the half-open door, I see tea laid out with white fluted cups and a jug with a black stripe, and everything so beautiful, even though underneath I can still see it as a heart, Bob Thorogood's it is, with the coils of rope hung on the wall and a hank and an eye splice left behind. You're the boy from the Blue Anchor, Mrs. Mack catches me looking. My husband says you've made some fine drawings of boats. Blood gushes to my face. I want to run, but if there's one thing that Mother's proud of, it's the manners she's cuffed into me. I stare at my boots. Will you have something to eat, she asks me, and I flush again, because it's not as if I haven't noticed there are sandwiches on the table beside the pot of flowers, the finest wild ones you could find that won't last till nightfall. I say I will, because I don't want to give offence, and I take my sandwich on its petal plate and I eat the triangle of bread so fast that I have to search myself for what is in it. Honey, there's a string of it on my lip. I'll be off now, thank you. And I take my leave of Mrs. Mack, and I keep walking till I'm at the mouth of the river where it meets the sea. Father's on the run again, that's what Mother calls it, when he starts in on the ale at lunch and drinks till there's a fight. I go to Mother in the scullery where she's busying herself with the scrubbing of a pan and I would have stayed there to defend her if I'd not seen the rolling pin she had to hand. You go on up to bed now, Tommy, she says quiet, and we listen to him from the empty bar, roaring out commands. It's too early for bed. Instead, I slip into the evening and keeping to the shadows, I run down to the sea. The tide is out and green webs of seaweed trail across the blackened harbour. Don't ever... The blackened harbour wall... Don't ever climb there, Mother has warned me. But I'm tired of her warnings and her endless fears, so I catch hold of the rough stone and pushing with my one good foot, I force my way up. Towards the top there is a ridge of wall. I've seen boys up there babbing for fish, although I'm never asked to join them. But even so, I know it can be done. I strain and pull, my fingers scraping against the smashed-up shells, and the higher I get, the louder I can hear the sea surging below me through the gully between groins. And then I am up. I swing my legs over and find the wall is narrower than it looked. The water below dark and deep, the tide about to turn. I edge myself round to face the comfort of the dunes. And that's when I see him, Mac, walking away from me along the beach. I sit quite still, but he is trudging over the shingle, his gait uneven as he sinks into the stones, his black cape back towards me. What is he looking for? I wonder, as Mac turns to the tide line and stares out at the sea, and as he lifts a pair of binoculars, I imagine his eyes straining all the way to Holland and on to Germany to see if what they say about a war is true. I must say, I, I, I just wanted to do this and get my teddy bear oh. and lie down. <laughs> And just listen to that like a bedside reading. <laughs> what a treat. What a beautiful voice too. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Coming back to your family and then I'll come to you for questions and, and comments. Um, <coughs> um, your parents separated very early in your life, but they died within days of each other. Yes. Most unexpected, wasn't yes. that? And I just wonder, I read your the obituary of your mother, which necessarily also had to engage with the death of your father as well. It all happened within four days of each other. 
Yes. So strange. I still feel in a certain amount of shock about it, even though it was, well, three and a half years ago. Still seems very recent. My father was 20 years older than my mother, and they met when she was about 16. Mm. And um, so he was getting old, and his health was declining, and I'd been mourning him slowly over those last few years of his life, losing him little bit by bit. And so we were kind of looking after him, all his children, actually. He had a wonderful end because, I mean, one of my sons said, um, I want to have lots of children. It's like granddad. It's just so cool, you know. There was always someone. Did you all relate? I mean, you were... For, uh, yeah, we had a rotor and we, we were, we're all really close. It's really wonderful. I mean, I can see it's not an ideal start in some ways, but it worked, it's worked out incredibly well. And that, I would say, is a lot to do with the mothers being incredible people mm. and, and, his, and his spirit. But so that was happening. And then my mother rang me one day and she was, she was concerned in some strange way and saying, I'm worried that when Lucien dies, people will say bad things about him and things will come out, you know. He, and I went, it's okay, it's okay. And then I was listening to her and I said, would you like to see him? is, you know, he is dying in such a shock. He was such a huge person. The idea that he was going to die just seemed so shocking, even though he had been iller and iller over the years. He was still painting. He was still managing, even just half an hour a day, still going out for dinner. Just. Once I went for dinner with him, quite near the end, and he took some cash out of his pocket. He liked, he was, you know, he stayed old-fashioned person in some way, you know, he always had cash and he never had a phone or anything. And anyway, out of his pocket with the cash, he pulled a large silver knife. And I said, what's that? And he went, I really have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's how things were a bit. Um, so, uh, so anyway, so my mother came up to London and she went to visit him. It was really lovely. And he said, you're looking well. And about two weeks later, she called me and said she really wasn't well. And uh, she was going into hospital to have a check. So I was like, oh, hang on, I, I, I'm, just, I'm doing my rotor with Dad. So uh, anyway, it took me a few days to get there. And she was diagnosed with cancer. And within a week, she was dead. And the same week as my dad. I was like, unbelievable. Mm. So that has been really, really hard. Mm. Because the shock of losing her, I kind of, my family's quite long-lived and I was just looking forward for 20 more years at least with her, and we were so close, it's just hard. And the it's day so before hard. she went into hospital, she'd been, hadn't she been dancing and playing drum and yeah. going to a workshop? And she went to something called drum camp, and she was doing an Egyptian dance workshop. Of course. And she was with a friend, and she said, you know, I really don't feel that well, but I'll just do one more dance. And then the next morning she went, I just really don't feel well. And amazing. Well, you know, when we were talking to the doctors about it, they went... This is the way we would love to go. It's hard for the people left behind because there's no time to get used to it. But, you know, to never know you are ill mm. or to just ignore it, I have no idea. Um, but to be so healthy and vibrant, not just not to be affected that you're that ill and to, from the... Because at one point we were saying, is there nothing you can do? She drove herself here. She can't be that bad. And they were like, well, there isn't really anything we could do. You know, maybe we could keep her alive for another few months if we did this. And she just went, no way. No way. And those two figures in your world were gone, just like that. Yeah. Gosh. 
There's much we could talk about in relation to Sigmund Freud too, and I'm fascinated in what legacy he's left your family. But shall we open out the microphone sure. um, to you, if you'd like to ask Esther a question or make a comment or um, you're a fan of her books and you'd like to respond. If you'd like to go to the microphones, there's one there and one there, um, and the crowd will miraculously part for you. So be brave, don't feel shy about asking the person next to you to squeeze their knees in. Um, and we'll start with you, thanks. Thank you, that was wonderful. I, I feel like I want to be your friend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, or would be honoured for you to be my friend. Um, uh, but I have a difficult question. Um, in the feminist world, um, Lucien Freud is, is, is quite interpreted as, as a misogynist, if, if not something less, a little less than misogynistic. Um, how, um, how do you feel about those, that um, interpretation of his work and his life? And how do you reconcile that in yourself as a as an independent and perhaps, I don't know whether you're a feminist, but those... Okay. Um, do you know, mm. I am absolutely a feminist, um, but I don't... That isn't my, my understanding that, that that is considered to be the case. I guess maybe it's different here, or maybe people just don't say that to me in England, but... <laughs> which, is, which is... Honestly, which is fine. It's interesting. I'm not... I'm not offended at all. I, it's interesting because actually someone said that to me last night as well. So I was pre-warned. It wasn't, and but we know who that was. It was Jermaine, It wasn't was. It, it was yeah. Jermaine Greer. <laughs> and, and, and we had a very interesting conversation and I saw her eyes widen as I said that I disagreed totally that, um, that he was a misogynist. Um, my experience was that he looked deeply and with honesty at the human body. And that in a way, if we have the courage to look with real honesty at our bodies, we won't be so tied into the idea that we're meant to be these kind of homogenous, creamy, beige, perfect people. That actually, I remember seeing that and it was helpful for me as a young, you know, 16, 17, as he painted me, that there was green and yellow in my skin that my veins were blue, that there was marks, and that I, that I wasn't how I like to look in a photograph at all, but I was still beautiful. And when I look at that painting of myself, it's not how I would dream to look, and I wasn't delighted by it at 16, but I can see it's a beautiful, strong body, and I'm glad to have that body. And that's how what I see when I look at other paintings. I wouldn't say there's anyone who's been painted by him who would feel that that was um, not an empowering experience. Mm. And, you know, Jermaine Greer, you know, she was saying she, to be really blunt, she was saying she felt that he kind of, you know, maybe focuses on the, the, the I mean, she said vagina, but actually he also often painted male, uh, gay men nude as well. Not... Um, not heterosexual men, always clothed. It's interesting. But maybe it's just their willingness. So, because I remember once he famously painted lots of pictures of Lee Bowery. He was also Australian. Oh, it's all tying in so beautifully. And I remember talking <laughs> to Lee about his, his process and the whole thing of being a model. And I, and I said, it's interesting, isn't it, how he always starts with your eyes? 
And he went, he always starts with my cock. <laughs> I was like, wow, okay. I just assumed he always starts because he always starts with my eyes. I guess he starts with the bit that for him, maybe in a different person with each person, I well, never asked anyone else, is the thing that he's most, I don't know, is most them or is, is Lee Barry? He, that's right. It, if I was painting Lee Barry, I probably would have started there as well. That's right. And some people see the world through their cock. I mean, let's... Yeah. <laughs> Frank about that. Uh, it's um, just interesting. With so, respect. <laughs> it's so, such an interesting question, but personally, that's not my experience. Thank you. Hi, I'm interested in what you see as the line between fiction and non-fiction when, when you're choosing which form to use, writing about things that have been inspired by real life or real events and people that you know and so forth. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I have only ever written fiction I have obviously written many articles and, and pieces about, you know, in a non-fiction way. Um, I love a story. And I think that as soon as you write anything, you're telling a story. So I guess it's not that I don't enjoy non-fiction too, but I'm not drawn to it in the way I'm drawn to a novel. If I need to research something, ideally, I'll read a novel about it. I really would like never to have to read a sort of fat, a book of facts but I, I, I can, I can um, enjoy a biography or an autobiography, but I really love a story. Isn't that delineated, though? I mean, look, if we do a quick survey of the characters in your books, um, well, there's the two little girls that go to Morocco mm -hmm. novel. Um, there's nine-year-old Tess in The Wild. Um, there's 16-year-old Lisa, high hopes for a first year in London. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Off to, uh, love falls. Lara is 17 and, and she's heading off with her father, a man she barely knows, yeah. on a holiday. I mean, the, the, it's transparently your story in there. Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess I use something that is close to my heart and in each of those books, there's huge elements of my story, but there's also many, many things because it's very rare that people's lives just make a novel. If they did, I wouldn't make up anything. But um, with each of those books, there was so much that I needed to create and imagine to make it into a novel, into a story. And if I had have chosen to tell them in a memoir, which would have been non-fiction, I wouldn't have been able to make up all the other things, and therefore it wouldn't have been such a good story. So in Hideous Kinky, yes, that is probably in a way, my most autobiographical book, because I really, there's very little in that book that didn't happen, but there's a lot that did happen that I didn't put in, and I had that license. But also, I could form it and tell it in the way that I wanted to, in the order that I wanted to. Mm. And also, because I didn't, in a way, it's the most autobiographical, but it's the one that I knew less about, because even though my memories were incredibly vivid, I... God, I thought I remembered so much when I started writing. I remember, I had like three pages worth because I was, I was five years old. Yeah. And um, they were kind of anecdotes, so I had to make it up, make it up. I remember going to a writing workshop and someone said, make it up, and I remember, my life? Really? <laughs> I was so shocked. And I said, just make it up, and so I did. You know, I made up what we ate and where we went and the journey on the bus from one, you know, how we hitched over the Atlas Mountains. I don't remember any of that. But, you know, no-one said that's not true because it's a novel. So. Yeah, liberating in yeah. some ways. Yeah. But making order of chaos <laughs> is, is yeah. how you've described it. Let's yeah. take another question. Thanks. Hi. Um, I'd just first like to say it's an honour to be here Thank you. with Freud. I mean, he's the founder. And, I mean, I'm finishing off my, my, um, my degree in psychotherapy. But I just wanted to ask you, 
during your life, what kept you going? What internally, what kept you going through your hard traumatic times of your parents' death and all those things? Like, what did you hold on to that got you to where you are? Because many other people would have fallen. What symbol, What? where did you reach to mm. keep going and follow the path and mm. get to where you are now? So successful and it's an honour to be here. Well, thank you. Um, I must say I'm interested in your resilience too because others would think back to being, you know, isolated from their father for the first 15 years of their life, ostensibly, or eight, and they would carry a burden about that, you know, and you don't seem to have... Hmm. I wonder... Once I went to see a psychologist about some issue I was having and I was feeling incredibly anxious. I had to go to Zambia to do a trip and write an article for Oxfam and I... A lot of things that were going on, I just felt like I couldn't cope. He said, I don't know why, but you're going to be fine. He said, I, I don't know why. I, people walk in here every day, and just some people have resilience mm. more than others. I was like, really? I could just don't think I can even get to the airport. <laughs> he said, you'll be fine. Just breathe. You know. <laughs> it's like, it's really helpful, you know, 200 pounds, but... You know. <laughs> But I don't know, on one level, I don't know. And I'm just so grateful that I do seem to have some resilience. But I, I also have a lot of optimism for life. And there's so many things that really, really give me pleasure. Like just swimming in the, water, in, in the sea, or mm. swimming in the lakes or walking in the nature. I, I just feel really lucky that I find those things incredibly healing. Also, being a mother, I always wanted kids. And I was about three, I remember thinking, hmm, I wonder if I'll call them this. Or I, just, I, I never even was sure I was making that up until I had a daughter who stopped in the street, age four, and went, I just can't wait anymore. Are you going to have another baby or not? And I was like, <laughs> oh my God, that's what I was like. I didn't make it up. Um, she used to go through the baby catalogues and, and tick the babies, not the clothes. And, you know. and so having children, I was so desperate. You know, I just knew I wanted three children. And my husband was like, why three? I mean, why did you decide this? Um, but I always knew that, and I, and I managed to have my three children. So that's kept me going And around that time of my parents' death. They really kept me going. And, um, and uh, but also I felt grief-stricken. But also they just had, they did have good deaths. And I felt so happy that, that I had been there with both of them, amazingly. Mm. Um, I was with my dad one hour before he died. And I remember thinking I could, what was extraordinary, because my mother was so ill in the week leading up to it, I wasn't with him. And then I thought, you know, I missed some of my shifts, and I remember, but I didn't worry. I never, ever crossed my mind that he'd die while I was with her. And then I thought, okay, tomorrow... Well, she was in a, quite far away in a hospital in the country, so um, I thought, tomorrow I won't visit her. I will be with my dad. And so I spent the evening with him, and he deteriorated in that week hugely. And, um, and, and so I was with him just before, and I left, and I wasn't even home when the phone rang. And I was just so glad, and I said everything I needed to say to him. And then the next day, I went to my mum, and, um, and, and then I was with her when she died. And so, in a f- strange way, that mm. I felt completely, almost sort of ecstatic 
that, that had been there, that it had gone well, that they hadn't been in pain, that, you know, I just felt so blessed. I have to say the grief set in later. Mm. There's no avoiding it. I remember thinking, God, I feel amazing, but, yeah. So being a Freud with mm. all that that comes with, <clears throat> that hasn't weighed you down. Do you know, Britain is a very interesting country. They're just so cynical. They just don't give a shit about this. <laughs> so grateful to live there. You know, you go to Paris, just, just you know, two and a half hours away, and the, the guy checking the passport was like, oh, Freud, no one in Britain. They're just like, sorry, how do you spell that? Or what's that? Repeat that? Or, and I'm so glad. And um, it just does not get mentioned in the way that it does in other countries. I also really appreciate being somewhere else and people are like, interested, because it is interesting. But I, no one ever mentioned it as I was growing up. I actually didn't, know who he was, I'd never heard of him. It sounds quite strange, but... So I didn't grow up under the shadow, mm. this great person. I remember being with my dad. He was very naughty. He was like a child. He never really grew up. He just... He embraced his childishness to the end. And um, we were walking down the street and a man chased after him and went, excuse me, excuse me, I, I think... He, I don't know if he was Chinese, but he said, are you related to the grapefruit? And then after that, we just became hysterical that we were related to the grapefruit. And then we talked about that and pretty much always referred to him as the grapefruit. So that's how unserious it was in our house. On that note, please thank Esther Freud. Thank you. Thank you, Esther.